Welcome back to our series on the evidence for and against the prophethood of Muhammad. In this lecture, we're going to examine two related arguments. The argument from moral excellence, Muhammad was so wonderful, he must be a prophet. And the argument from positive impact. Muhammad's teachings have had such a positive impact on the world, uh, these teachings must be from God. We have a lot to cover, so we'll jump right into our first argument. The argument from moral excellence goes something like this. If you look at the life of Muhammad, you'll see that he was so wonderful, that his character was so flawless, that he was so amazing in every way, he must be a prophet of God. I find it difficult to state this argument formally because whenever I try to do this, uh, the absurdity of the argument uh, is so obvious. The most straightforward way of formulating the argument would be this. Premise one, if someone is really, really good, he must be a prophet. Premise two, Muhammad was really, really good. Conclusion, therefore, he must be a prophet. We're going to spend most of our time examining the second premise, the claim that Muhammad was really, really good. But I think it's clear that there's a massive problem with that first premise as well. If someone lives a really good life, does this mean the person is a prophet? Lots of people admire the lives of Martin Luther King Jr. or uh, Gandhi or Mother Teresa. Does that mean that Martin Luther King Jr. or Gandhi or Mother Teresa have to be prophets? Of course not. And so this is a very, very strange claim to make once again. Um, but again, we're going to focus on the second premise. It's quite common to hear Muslim apologists say that Muhammad liberated women, that he was against slavery and cruelty, that hearts melted as they heard his loving, peaceful words, that under Muhammad's leadership, Arabia went from being the most immoral place in the world to being the most moral place in the world. These are very common claims. And I'll just say here at the beginning that I have absolutely no clue what sources Muslims are using when they say these things. Muhammad was not the greatest man in history, far from it. Now, I believe in giving credit where credit is due, and I have no problem saying that Muhammad had many good qualities. In fact, for the first 50 years or so of his life, I, I like Muhammad a lot. Uh, everything falls apart after that, but um, I'll say that Muhammad was courageous. There were times when he was merciful. He was dedicated to helping widows and orphans. He helped put an end to practices such as uh, female infanticide, killing uh, babies. Uh, these are good qualities, and I think we should acknowledge that. But Muslims tend to exaggerate Muhammad's uh, good qualities and to completely ignore his bad qualities. The result is that Muslims believe in a Walt Disney version of Muhammad, especially here in the West. But if we're attempting to assess Muhammad's life and character, we can't simply focus on the details of his life that make Muslims feel good about their prophet. Here's why. Let me tell you about a man named John. John held neighborhood barbecues regularly. He worked with youth programs helping young people. He was a leader in the local business community. He entertained children at birthday parties. He was dedicated to his family. He helped young men find jobs. Sounds like a great guy, huh? Well, if I'm going to argue that he was a very moral person, I can't leave out the fact that John Wayne Gacy killed 
30 young boys and raped them and buried them under his home. You can't leave out a fact like that if you're trying to come up with an assessment of a person's life. Uh, if we do that, we can make anyone look good. Serial killers, Hitler, Stalin, Osama bin Laden, anyone. No, we need a complete picture. And if Muhammad helps orphans, that's great. But that doesn't mean we can leave out the fact that he had people murdered in their beds for criticizing him. Now, let's review some of the facts. A moment ago, I said that until Muhammad was around 50 years old, I, I like a lot of what he did. Let's talk about what happened after that. Before that, Muhammad was being persecuted in Mecca, and he endured the persecution without retaliating. He had remained faithful to one wife for many years. But things changed dramatically when Muhammad left Mecca. Shortly after leaving Mecca, the Muslim community began supporting themselves by robbing people. Now, the early Muslim community could have maintained their religion through hard work, frugal spending, and the donations of admirers. Yet Muhammad chose robbery as his chief source of income. And greed soon became uh, one of the primary factors in people's rapid conversion to Islam. Indeed, Muhammad deliberately used the spoils of war to lure people to Islam. As we read in Ibn Ishaq, when Muhammad was criticized for the way he was distributing his newfound wealth, he replied, Are you disturbed in mind because of the good things of this life by which I win over a people that they may become Muslims while I entrust you to your Islam? People were converting to Islam to gain wealth from robbery and raids. Given this prospect of untold riches, it's no wonder that many people committed themselves to Islam. In Sahih al-Bukhari, 2787, Muhammad guaranteed that Allah will, quote, admit the struggler in his cause into paradise if he is killed. Otherwise, he will return him to his home safely with rewards and war booty. So you're either going to fight and die and go to paradise and be rewarded there, or you're going to return victorious with spoils and war booty. This message must have sounded extraordinary to the poor of Arabia. If they died in the cause of Allah, they would go to paradise and be rich. If they survived, they would plunder their enemies and be rich. Either way, their situation would be much better upon embracing Islam. So we have two problems with Muhammad's decision to rob people. One, robbery doesn't seem like something that the greatest man in history should be doing. And two, winning converts based on the money they can receive by robbing people doesn't seem like a very moral way to win converts. But there's a third problem. Muhammad's robberies ultimately resulted in a great deal of violence and bloodshed. The people of Mecca depended on the caravan trade to feed their families. So Muhammad was threatening their livelihood. The Muslims launched raids against the Meccan caravans seven times, and the Meccans never retaliated. It wasn't until the Muslims killed a man during a raid during the holy month when there was a truce that the Meccans finally said, that's enough, we're going to retaliate. The result was a series of wars between Mecca and the Muslim community in Medina. Now, we haven't even considered the bloodshed that caused by Muslim raids of other areas and other people groups. Um, but there was a great deal. So we should already be questioning whether Muhammad is history's greatest man. Another problem we see uh, early on after the Muslims migrated to Medina is that Muhammad began ordering the assassination of people who criticized Islam. 
Uh, Muslims often try to justify this by saying that Muhammad was a political leader and that therefore he you know, needed to crack down on people. But this is completely wrong. We're not talking about people who were put on trial for crimes. We're talking about people that Muhammad ordered to be executed because they made fun of him or because they made fun of Islam. Now, there are plenty of examples we could look at, but we'll briefly consider two that stand out. In the early Muslim sources, we read about a man named Abu Afak, who was more than a hundred years old. Uh, Abu wrote a poem that was critical of Muhammad, and it got him killed. Here's the poem. Long have I lived, but never have I seen an assembly or collection of people more faithful to their undertaking and their allies when called upon than the sons of Calah when they are assembled, men who overthrew mountains and never submitted. Then a rider who came to them and split them in two, saying, Permitted, forbidden, of all sorts of things. Had you believed in glory or kingship, you would have followed Tuba. That's it. So he tells people that they'd be better off following someone other than Muhammad. Muhammad ordered this man to be assassinated in his sleep for writing this. And the Muslims did kill Abu Afak in his sleep over this poem. Is this what history's greatest man would do? Let's look at another example. After Abu Afak was murdered in his sleep, a woman named Asma heard that the Muslims had killed him. So she wrote a poem too, and Muhammad ordered his followers to kill her as well. Here's what happened, according to one of Islam's earliest biographers, Ibn Sa'd. Umar came to her in the night and entered her house. Her children were sleeping around her. There was one whom she was suckling. He searched for her with his hand because he was blind due to the darkness and separated the child from her. He thrust his sword into her chest until it pierced her to her back. Then he offered the morning prayers with the prophet at Al-Madinah. The apostle of Allah said to him, Have you slain the daughter of Marwan? He said, Yes. Is there something more for me to do? Muhammad said, No. Two goats will butt their heads about her. So this woman had her baby pulled away from her to be stabbed to death over writing a poem. Should history's greatest man be ordering the assassinations of anyone who criticizes him? I don't think so. Violence became a standard way of handling problems after, after the Muslims moved to Medina. Let me give you an example uh, of a different kind, torture. Muhammad and his men conquered a town called Kaybar and distributed its riches and women among themselves. They captured a man named Kanena bin al-Arabi, who was in charge of the treasure of one of the conquered tribes. Muhammad demanded the treasure, but Kanena refused to tell him where it was hidden. Here's what happened according to Ibn Ishaq, our earliest uh, biography of Muhammad. When Muhammad asked him about the rest, he refused to produ produce it. So the apostle gave orders to Az-Zubair bin al-Awam, torture him until you extract what he has. So he kindled a fire with flint and steel on his chest until he was nearly dead. Then the apostle delivered him to Muhammad bin Maslama, and he struck off his head in revenge for his brother Mahmud, who had been killed in battle. So here we have a person being tortured to death to extract money. Uh, should the greatest moral example in history be torturing a man for money? While we're on the topic of Muhammad's raids, we should consider an important teaching of the Quran. According to the Quran, Muslims are allowed to have sex with their slave girls and female captives. Captives have no right to refuse. Let's look at three passages from the Quran. Surah 4, 24. Uh, also prohibited are women already married, except those whom your right hands possess. 
slave girls, and captives. 23, 1 through 6 reads, The believers must eventually win through those who humble themselves in their prayers, who avoid vain talk, who are active in deeds of charity, who abstain from sex except with those joined to them in the marriage bond or the captives whom their right hands possess. For in their case, they are free from blame. And in Surah 33:50 we read, O prophet, we have made lawful to thee thy wives whom thou hast paid their dowries and those whom thy right hand possesses out of the prisoners of war whom Allah has assigned to thee. So Muslims are allowed to have sex with uh, their wives and their slave girls and female captives. Muslims often try to explain this in two ways. First, they'll say, people, well, people who uh, aren't really familiar with the sources will say that Muslims uh, married these girls. This uh, was true on occasion, and Muslims were free to marry these women. Uh, but it certainly wasn't a rule. Muslims could keep slave girls and have sex with them. That's what the Quran says, and that's been the Muslim practice. Second, Muslims will claim that the slave girls wanted to have sex with the, with the Muslims because these women wanted to have children. The Muslim sources refute this claim. Let's consider three passages from the Hadith. Sahih al-Bukhari, number 2229. Uh, Said al-Kudri narrated that while he was sitting with Allah's messenger, a man came and said, O oh Allah's messenger, we get female captives as our share of the war booty, and we are interested in their prices. What is your opinion about coitus interruptus? The prophet said, Do you really do that? It is better for you not to do it. No soul which Allah has destined to exist, but will surely come into existence. Notice what we have here. The Muslims wanted to have sex with the captives, but they didn't want to get the captives pregnant because they were interested in their prices. The Muslims were going to sell these women into slavery uh, when they got to the next town. This wasn't easy if the women were pregnant. So the Muslims wanted to practice azal or coitus interruptus, which is having sex and uh, then stopping right before um, ejaculation. That way the woman wouldn't get pregnant. Muhammad told his followers it was better not to practice azal because every child that is destined to be born will come into existence. So birth control is pointless. Sahih al-Bukhari number 4138, Abu Sa'id said, We went out with Allah's messenger for the Ghazwa of Banu al-Mustalik, and we received captives from among the Arab captives, and we desired women, and celibacy became hard on us, and we love to do coitus interruptus, azal. So when we intended to do coitus interruptus, we said, how can we do coitus interruptus without asking Allah's messenger while he is present among us? We asked him about it, and he said, it is better for you not to do so. There is no person that is destined to exist, but will come into existence till the day of resurrection. So Muslims were free to have sex with the women who are going to be sold into slavery. Were these women who wanted to have sex with the Muslims? No. The Muslims had just killed their husbands and fathers, and the Muslims were about to take them to town and sell them into slavery. So this had nothing to do with marriage. It had nothing to do with women wanting to have children. The Muslims even said they didn't want to get the women pregnant. This was simply an instance of Muslims using grieving women to satisfy their sexual desires, and Muhammad and the Quran guaranteed them this right. We should also note that sometimes the women's husbands were still alive when the Muslims would have sex with them. It was on one of these occasions that Surah 424 was revealed. In Sunan Abu Dawud 2150, we read, The Apostle of Allah sent a military expedition to Altas on the occasion of the Battle of Hunain. They met their enemy and fought with them. 
They defeated them and took them captive. Some of the companions of the Apostle of Allah were reluctant to have intercourse with the female captives in the presence of their husbands who were unbelievers. So Allah the Exalted sent down the Quranic verse, And all married women are forbidden unto you, save those captives whom your right hands possess. That is to say, they are lawful for them when they complete their waiting period. So according to Surah 424, Muslims can't have sex with married women unless those married women are captives. Think about this. This passage says that the Muslims didn't want to have sex with the women because their husbands were still alive. Then Surah 424 was revealed as a response to this. It says, what are you doing? You have the right to have sex with these married women. They're your captives. Is this a teaching that we would expect from history's greatest man? Many of the captives that Muslims took were Jewish captives, so we should probably consider Muhammad's treatment of the Jews here. We need to keep in mind that Muhammad was invited to Medina to be a peacemaker. There were three tribes of Jews and two tribes of Arabs, and they were constantly fighting. They were sick of it. They wanted a mediator, and Muhammad seemed like the perfect choice. So they invited him to flee the persecution in Mecca and to come to Medina. The Jews and Arabs of Medina signed a treaty with Muhammad, expecting him to bring peace to their city. But what did Muhammad do when he got to Medina? He started robbing the Meccan caravans. He justified robbing these caravans by saying that they had persecuted him. You persecuted me, so you're not letting me go to the Kaaba, so I get to rob you. But the Meccans were getting pretty annoyed, and the Jews in Medina realized that Muhammad was provoking a war. So they had signed a treaty expecting Muhammad to bring peace to their land, and as soon as Muhammad rises to power, he starts doing everything he can to lead the city into war. Muhammad didn't keep his end of the deal. The first Jewish tribe said, look, we signed up for peace, not war with Mecca. This guy's going to get us all killed. So they backed out of the treaty. Muhammad wanted to behead them all, but someone convinced him not to. Instead, he kicked them out of Medina, took their land and their property. The second tribe of Jews didn't actually do anything. In fact, they threw a feast for Muhammad. But during this feast, Muhammad received a revelation saying that they were really out to get him. So he declared war on the second tribe of Jews and expelled them from the city and their homes. Now, if you're the third tribe of Jews, what are you thinking? You're thinking, we're next. So they tried to form an alliance against the Muslims before it was too late, but it was already too late. The Meccans left after the Battle of the Trench, and the Jews had no one to protect them. Muhammad had promised his followers that if they fought at his side, they would share in the spoils of war. But the Meccans were gone. There were no spoils of war. So how was Muhammad going to keep his promise? Muhammad acted quickly. His armies surrounded the Jews and besieged them for 25 nights until uh, God cast terror into their hearts, as Ibn Ishaq says. Muhammad selected Saad to decide their punishment, and Saad declared that, quote, the men should be killed, the property divided, and the women and children taken as captives. Here's what happened, according to Ibn Ishaq. Then they surrendered, and the apostle confined them to Medina. Then the apostle went out to the market of Medina, which is still its market today, and dug trenches in it. Then he sent for them and struck off their heads in those trenches as they were brought out to him in batches. There were six or seven hundred in all, though some put the figure as high as eight or nine hundred. As they were being taken out in batches to the apostle, they asked Cobb what he thought would be done to them. 
He replied, Will you never understand? Don't you see that the summoner never stops, and those who are taken away do not return? By Allah, it is death. This went on until the apostle made an end of them. Every male who had reached the age of puberty was killed. Muhammad divided the women, children, and property among his men, taking a fifth of everything for himself. Now, let's suppose that the Jews were wrong for turning against Muhammad when he brought them war instead of peace. Couldn't he have just kicked them out uh, the way he did with the other tribes? If killing was necessary, couldn't he have just killed the leaders rather than uh, all the adults, all the adult men? Muslims claim that Muhammad was merciful. Well, he had a chance here to show that he was merciful, and he didn't. Muhammad killed them to get rid of them and to have some spoils to give to his followers. We know from Sahih Muslim that this was the plan all along. One of Muhammad's most trusted sources, Sahih Muslim, says that Muhammad said he wanted to eliminate all Jews and Christians, by the way, from the Arabian Peninsula until no one except Muslims were left. And Muhammad was amazingly successful. If you go to Saudi Arabia today, you won't find many Jews there. But this hardly makes him the greatest moral example in history. Now, we've been discussing Muhammad's um, example in his dealings with outsiders, and there's nothing anywhere that would make us think that Muhammad was the greatest man in history. Well, let's turn now to his dealings with the people who are closest to him. One of the most basic principles of morality is consistency, moral consistency. Practice what you preach. Don't be a hypocrite. This is foundational to morality. And Muhammad was not morally consistent. Surah 4.3 says that Muslims can have up to four wives. But we know from history that Muhammad had a lot more than four wives. Al-Tabari says that Muhammad consummated marriage with 13 women. We also know from references in al-Bukhari that Muhammad had at least nine wives at one time. So if the Quran says that men were allowed to have no more than four wives, why did Muhammad get more? Well, eventually Muhammad received another revelation, Surah 3350, which gave him and him only special moral privileges. He got to marry uh, all the women he wanted to. I'll just say that it looks awfully suspicious when a prophet receives revelations that give him more sexual partners than everyone else. Let's take a closer look at some of Muhammad's wives. The most notorious example here, of course, is Muhammad's relationship with a nine-year-old girl. Her name was Aisha. She was the daughter of Muhammad's best friend, Abu Bakr. According to numerous reports, Muhammad married Aisha when she was six or seven years old, and he consummated the marriage with her when she was nine years old. I'll read three passages here, one from each of Islam's three most trusted collections of ahadith, or reports about the uh, life of Muhammad. Sahih al-Bukhari, number 3895. Khadija died three years before the Prophet departed to al-Madinah. He stayed there for two years or so, and then he wrote the marriage contract with Aisha when she was a girl of six years of age, and he consummated that marriage when she was nine years old. Sahih Muslim, number 3311. Aisha reported that Allah's apostle married her when she was seven years old, and she was taken to his house as a bride when she was nine, and her dolls were with her. And when the Holy Prophet died, she was 18 years old. Sunan Abu Dawud. Number 2116, Aisha said, 
The Apostle of Allah married me when I was seven years old. He had intercourse with me when I was nine. We find these reports throughout the Muslim sources, so there's no question that Muhammad did have sex with a nine-year-old girl named Aisha. But there are some other issues here we need to consider. For instance, according to Sahih al-Bukhari 5236 and 6130, Aisha hadn't even reached puberty when her marriage to Muhammad was consummated. Islam's greatest commentator on the Quran, Ibn Kathir, says that Aisha probably didn't reach puberty until she was 14 years old, which means that Muhammad spent five years having sex with a prepubescent girl. Interestingly, the most common Muslim defense of Muhammad's relationship with Aisha is to say, well, this was a different culture, so you can't judge Muhammad by today's standards. I'm absolutely shocked when Muslims use this response because they're appealing to moral relativism to rescue their prophet. Moral relativists are people who, who say that morality changes from culture to culture, which is fine, I'd say, if you're an atheist, but it's totally inconsistent with Islam. But let's grant this response. Let's agree that we should try to understand that this was a different culture with different rules. And let's recognize that in 7th century Arabia, it was apparently acceptable for a 52-year-old man to have sex with a 9-year-old girl. Here's the problem. Muhammad is supposed to be the greatest man who ever lived, an example for all mankind. Not only this, the Quran declares in Surah 33:21 that Muhammad is the example that all people are to follow. I think that most people watching these lectures would agree with me when I say that history's greatest man probably shouldn't be having sex with a girl who, according to Muslim sources, was still playing with dolls. Muslims also try to defend Muhammad's relationship with Aisha by attributing noble motives to him. So Muslims will say, ah, Muhammad married Aisha because he wanted to show the Muslim community that you shouldn't have sex with a girl younger than nine years old. I'm not sure why he couldn't have just have told them that instead of actually putting it you know, on display. Um, but I think he should have raised the age limit there a bit. Uh, Muslims will also say that Muhammad married Aisha because he needed to cement his relationship with Abu Bakr. Look, Abu Bakr was Muhammad's closest friend already. I've had several best friends in my life. I've never had to sleep with their nine-year-old daughters in order to improve our relations. Another Muslim response here is to say that Muhammad saw a great deal of potential in Aisha, and therefore he wanted her to be close to him so he could be her mentor. I'm sorry, but you don't need to have sex with a young girl in order to guide her or be her mentor. The problem with all of these explanations is that we know why Muhammad married Aisha. It's in the Muslim sources, and it had nothing to do with the motives Muslims typically attribute to him. Muhammad, plain and simply, married Aisha because he started dreaming about her. Sahih al-Bukhari, number 3895. Aisha said, The prophet said to her, You have been shown to me twice in my dream. I saw you pictured on a piece of silk, and someone said to me, This is your wife. When I uncovered the picture, I saw that it was yours. I said, If this is from Allah, it will be accomplished. Aisha, of course, was five or six years old when Muhammad began having these dreams. I don't know about you, but if I were to start dreaming about uh, being married to a five-year-old girl, I wouldn't automatically conclude that these dreams were from God. Well, let's move on and consider some of Muhammad's other relationships. Another notorious marriage of Muhammad was his marriage to Zainab. Muhammad had an adopted son named Zayd, who was called Zayd bin Muhammad, Zayd, son of Muhammad.
One day, Muhammad went to visit him and was greeted by Zayd's wife, Zainab, who was one of the most beautiful women in Arabia and who was wearing very little clothing at the time. Here's what happened, according to Al-Tabari. She jumped up in haste and excited the admiration of the messenger of God so that he turned away murmuring something that could scarcely be understood. However, he did say overtly, Glory be to God the Almighty. Glory be to God who causes hearts to turn. When Zayd found out that Muhammad was attracted to his wife, he decided to divorce her. Muhammad, of course, was worried about what people might think. So he said, No, keep your wife. But by that time, Zainab had found out that Muhammad was attracted to her. So she began despising her husband. Zayd, wanting to give his adopted father whatever he wanted, divorced his wife. Muhammad was still worried about what people might think if he married Zainab, but then he began receiving revelations to justify the marriage. He received Surah 3337, which says that it's okay to marry the wives of your adopted sons. But people began criticizing him anyway. They said, wait a minute, Muhammad told us that it's morally wrong to marry the divorced wives of our sons, and yet he himself did it. So Muhammad received another revelation, Surah 33.5, which says that adopted sons aren't really sons, and so the rule just doesn't apply. From that point on, Zayd was no longer called Muhammad's son, and Muhammad and Zainab lived happily ever after. But not all of Muhammad's wives had happy lives. Around the time he married Aisha, Muhammad married a young woman, well, an elderly woman named Sada. After several years, Sada got old and fat. Aisha called her a fat, huge woman. So Muhammad had Aisha, and he had Zainab, and he had several other wives, and after a while, he just wasn't attracted to Sada anymore. So he decided to divorce her. Sada didn't like the idea of being an elderly divorcee, so in order to keep Muhammad from divorcing her because of her appearance, she had to give her night to Aisha, Muhammad's favorite wife at that point. Muhammad would take turns at the homes of each of his wives. Sada told Muhammad that if he didn't divorce her, he could spend her night with Aisha. Muhammad liked this idea, and a passage of the Quran even came down as a result. Surah 4, 128 reads, And if a woman fears ill usage or desertion on the part of her husband, there is no blame on them if they affect a reconciliation between them, and reconciliation is better. Ibn Kathir comments on this ayah. Allah states, and thus legislates accordingly, that sometimes the man inclines away from his wife, sometimes towards her, and sometimes he parts with her. In, this, in the first case, when a wife fears that her husband is steering away from her or deserting her, she is allowed to forfeit all or part of her rights, such as provisions, clothing, dwelling, and so forth, and the husband is allowed to accept such concessions from her. Hence, there is no harm if she offers such concessions and if her husband accepts them. So when a wife grows older and her husband is no longer attracted to her, it's acceptable for him to abandon her. In an effort to avoid this, the woman is allowed to forfeit her rights, such as her right to be provided with food, clothing, etc. Ibn Kathir goes on to say that this verse was revealed because Sauda was worried that Muhammad was going to divorce her, and so she gave up some of her rights to Aisha. The Quran obviously approves of this. Next, next, let's take a look at a Jewish captive named Sophia. When Muhammad and his followers conquered the Jewish settlement of Kaibar, he promised a Muslim named Dia that he could choose any of the female captives for himself. Dia chose a very beautiful woman named Sophia. 
But then everyone told Muhammad how beautiful Sophia was. So he said, Dia, remember when I told you you could pick any woman you want? Well, I'm taking Safiya. Um, sorry, you go pick someone else. Interestingly, Safiya's husband was Kenena, the man that had been tortured to death at Muhammad's command. What's important now is that Muhammad took a female captive for himself, a woman whose family had just been slaughtered at Muhammad's command. Several of Muhammad's wives were taken as captives in his battles. Muhammad had a wife named Juariya, whom he took as a captive when he conquered the Bani Mustalik tribe. According to Sahih Muslim 2349, Muslims attacked Bani Mustalik with no warning while the latter were grazing their cattle. Juariya was the beautiful daughter of the tribe's chief. Muhammad took her as a captive and she agreed to marry him. She would get better treatment that way, better than a slave girl at least. Muhammad took another captive when he conquered the Khareza Jews. The Jews, as we've seen, as we've seen uh, rebelled against Muhammad. Muhammad beheaded the men and took the women and children as captives. One of the women was named Rehana. Muhammad took her as a captive. He offered to make her his wife, but she uh, despised the Muslims so much that she declared she would rather be a slave than Muhammad's wife. Here's the report, according to Ibn Ishaq. The apostle had chosen one of their women for himself, Rehana one of the women of Kareza, and she remained with him until she died in his power. The apostle had proposed to marry her and put the veil on her, but she said, Nay, leave me in your power, for that will be easier for me and for you. So uh, he left her. He left. He didn't marry her. She had shown repugnance towards Islam when she was captured and clung to Judaism. So she chose to remain Muhammad's slave than marry him. But according to some Muslim sources, she eventually converted to Islam. Again, she would get better treatment that way. Here we should also consider Muhammad's relationship with a slave girl named Sarah. As we've seen, the Quran guarantees Muslims the right to have sex with their slave girls and female captives. Muhammad uh, certainly took advantage of these verses in the Quran. Despite the fact that he had at least nine wives at the time, Muhammad still had sex with a slave girl named Sarah. This upset Muhammad's wives quite a bit. Eventually, his wives convinced him to stop having sex with his slave girl. But then he received a verse of the Quran asking him why he stopped having sex with her when God had given him the right to do so. In Sunan An-Nasai 34.11, we read, The messenger of Allah had a female slave with whom he had intercourse, but Aisha and Hafsa would not leave him alone until he said that, he was, that she was forbidden for him. Then Allah, the mighty and sublime, revealed, O prophet, why do you forbid for yourself that which Allah has allowed to you? Until the end of the verse. So let's follow the chain of events here. Surah 4.3 declares that Muslims can have up to four wives. Muhammad then receives Surah 33.50, which gives him and him alone the right to have even more. Various, various verses in the Quran declare that Muslim men may have sex with their slave girls and female captives. Muhammad, who already had nine wives who were incredibly jealous of one another, chooses to have sex with his slave girl. Two of his favorite wives were extremely upset by this, and they compel him to stop this adulterous affair. And Allah tells Muhammad, in effect, why are you listening to your wives? Didn't I tell you that you're free to have sex with your slave girls? So this is the example that Muhammad set with his wives. It's okay to have sex with a prepubescent girl. It's okay to divorce your wife if she gets old and fat. It's okay to break up your adopted son's marriage and to marry his wife. It's okay to break a promise in order to get a beautiful woman whose husband you just tortured and murdered. 
It's okay to have sex with your slave girls, even if it bothers your wives. Is this history's greatest man? When we say that someone is a moral person, we usually mean that he doesn't murder people or tell people it's okay to rape women or have sex with prepubescent girls or torture people for money. But Muhammad did all of these things. So what can Muslims possibly mean when they say that Muhammad was a pillar of morality? Is this the man that the entire world should strive to emulate? At this point, Muslims usually try to justify Muhammad's actions by inventing motives that supposedly justify what he did. So if Muhammad has sex with a prepubescent girl, he must have had only the purest of intentions. If Muhammad marries uh, more women than his own revelations allow, it must be for Islam and not because they were beautiful, as the early Muslim sources tell us. Muslims try to make lemonade out of the mountain of lemons that Muhammad has left us with. But our concern now is simply to determine whether the argument for moral excellence succeeds or fails. But since this argument is meant to show people that Muhammad was a prophet, we would have to agree that Muhammad was a very moral person. And for us to believe that Muhammad was a great moral example, we would have to grant that it's, that it's acceptable to have sex with a nine-year-old girl, to marry more wives than everyone else is allowed to marry, to deliver revelations that have no purpose other than satisfying your desires, to marry the wife of your own adopted son, to have sex with your slave girls, to assassinate people for criticizing your religion, to execute people for making fun of you, to behead hundreds of Jews for trying to defend themselves once they realize you are eliminating them, to start a war with Mecca when you had a chance to live in peace in Medina, to enslave thousands of people, to allow your followers to rape their female captives, to take the most beautiful captives back to your own tent, to torture people for money, to support your religion by robbing people. Are we ready to grant that? Of course not. So until Muslims give us some reason to radically alter our moral views, we cannot accept this argument. This brings us to our next argument, the argument from positive impact. Muslims often argue that Islam must be true because it's had such a wonderful impact on the world. Now, much of what we've looked at in this lecture so far can be brought up here because Muslims are taught to follow the example of Muhammad. And the example of Muhammad is causing suffering around the world. For instance, because Muhammad had sex with a nine-year-old girl when he was more than 50 years old, it's quite common in the Muslim world for older men to marry very young girls. In the Muslim world, 50, 60, 70-year-old men are marrying seven, eight, nine-year-old girls. The men are following the example set by Muhammad. But rather than simply going through all of this again, I'm going to focus on violence in Islam since it's clear that Islam has brought much violence into the world. When we read the Muslim sources, we find that the Islamic solution for practically everything is violence. If people refuse to submit to Islam, the solution is to fight and kill them, violence. If people leave Islam, the solution is to kill them, violence. If people criticize Islam, the solution is to murder them, violence. If women disobey their husbands, the solution is to tie them up and beat them, violence, 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 violence. Let's look at the evidence. Muslims in the West are quick to point to Surah 2, 256. There is no compulsion in religion as if this and the other couple of peaceful verses in the Quran show that Islam is a religion of peace. What Muslims don't tell us is that the peaceful verses of the Quran were abrogated or canceled by the verses on fighting which came later. 
Ibn Kathir, considered by many Muslims to be the greatest Quranic commentator of all time, says that Surah 2, 256 was abrogated by verses like 973, 9123, and 4816, which call for fighting. Ibn Kathir says, Therefore, all people of the world should be called to Islam. If any one of them refuses to do so, or refuses to pay the jizya, they should be fought till they are killed. This is not Osama bin Laden I'm quoting. This is Ibn Kathir. But is he right? Consider these words of Muhammad. In Sahih Muslim number 30, Muhammad says, I have been commanded to fight against people so long as they do not declare that there is no God but Allah. He's been commanded to fight who? People who don't declare that there is no God but Allah. That's me. That's you. In Sahih al-Bukhari 69.24, Muhammad says, I have been ordered to fight the people till they say, none has the right to be worshipped but Allah. And whoever says this, Allah will save his property and life from me. So until you recite the Shahada, the Muslim creed, your life and property are in jeopardy. It's clear then that Muslims are called to fight people until they accept Islam. The only, the only exception is in the case of certain groups such as Christians and Jews who have the option of paying the jizya tax, which is a payment meant to acknowledge your inferiority. It's a sign of humiliation. Surah 929 says this, Fight those who believe not in Allah, nor the last day, nor hold, that which, nor hold that forbidden which has been forbidden by Allah and his messenger, nor acknowledge the religion of truth. From among the people of the book, until they pay the jizya with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. Now, why are Muslims here called to fight Jews and Christians? According to Ibn Kathir, the answer is found in the very next verse, which says, And the Jews say, Uzair is the son of Allah. And the Christians say, The Messiah is the son of Allah. These are the words of their mouths. They imitate the sayings of those who disbelieve before them. May Allah destroy them how they are turned away. Ibn Kathir says that fighting the Jews and Christians is legislated because they are idolaters and disbelievers. Allah encourages the believers to fight the disbelieving Jews and Christians who uttered this terrible statement and utter lies against Allah the Exalted. As for the misguidance of Christians over Isa, it is obvious. Ibn Kathir knew more about Muslim sources than just about any other person in history. And he says that Muslims were called to fight Christians because we say that Jesus is the Son of God. Unless we convert to Islam or come crawling on our hands and knees to pay off the Muslim leaders, Muslims are commanded to fight us. The only time Muslims aren't supposed to fight non-Muslims is when Muslims are too weak to win. According to Surah 328, if Muslims feel threatened by a stronger adversary, they're allowed to pretend to be friendly. As Ibn Kathir says, in this case, such believers are allowed to show friendship outwardly, but never inwardly. Abu Darda, companion of Muhammad, put it this way. We smile in the face of some people, although our hearts curse them. So Muslims are allowed to seek peace temporarily when they're weak. Apart from that, Muslims are told not to be peaceful. Surah 4735 says, Be not weary and faint-hearted, crying for peace when you should be uppermost. According to Ibn Kathir, this first means that Muslims shouldn't compromise, seek peace, or end the fighting with non-Muslims when Muslims are in a position of power. 
Well, when are Muslims allowed to seek peace? Ibn Kathir tells us, if the disbelievers are considered more powerful and numerous than the Muslims, then the imam may decide to hold a treaty if he judges that it entails a benefit for the Muslims. Are you seeing a pattern here? If Muslims are strong, they're told to fight everyone. If they're weak, they're told to pretend to be friendly and to seek a temporary peace while they build up enough strength to attack. Is this a religion of peace? No, this is a religion that pretends to be peaceful when Muslims are too weak to win a war. Make no mistake, in Islam, fighting is not an afterthought. Fighting is an essential part of the religion. Sahih al-Bukhari number 2785. A man came to Allah's messenger and said, Guide me to such a deed as equals jihad in reward. Muhammad replied, I do not find such a deed. Sahih al-Bukhari, number 2796, the Prophet said, A single endeavor of fighting in Allah's cause in the afternoon or in the forenoon is better than all the world and whatever is in it. According to Islam, what's the greatest thing in the world? Fighting and dying for Allah in a jihad. In fact, this is what Muhammad wanted most. Sahih al-Bukhari 2797. The Prophet said, By him in whose hands my soul is, I would love to be martyred in Allah's cause and then to come back to life and then get martyred and then come back to life again and then get martyred and then come back to life and get martyred. How can Muslims suggest that this was a peaceful man? I don't know. But they do. If we look at the evidence honestly, we see that Muslims are called to fight everyone. Violence is the solution for unbelief. But violence is the solution for many other things as well. It's the solution for apostasy. Sahih al-Bukhari 6921 says that female apostates should be killed. 6922 says that anyone who leaves Islam must be killed. 6923 says that Muhammad ordered apostates to be killed. 6930 says that Muslims who kill apostates will have a reward on the day of resurrection. Now why not talk to them? Why not present them with evidence if the evidence for Islam is so clear? Why is the only solution violence? As we saw earlier, violence is the solution when someone criticizes Islam. We saw that Muhammad ordered the assassination of critics. We also know that Muhammad allowed his followers to murder people who criticize Islam. In Sunan Abu Dawud 4348 and 4349, we read about people who are brutally killed for speaking negatively about Muhammad. So how does Islam deal with criticism? Well, if Muslims are weak, as they were at the beginning of Muhammad's career, they do nothing. But when Muslims are strong enough, critics are brutally murdered. The solution for criticism is violence. Well, violence also serves a different purpose in Islam. Sometimes women don't do everything that men want them to do. So how are Muslims supposed to treat their unruly wives? According to Surah 434, if your wives get out of line, you are commanded, as Pickthall translates it, to banish them to beds apart and scourge them. The background of this verse is interesting. A Muslim woman came to Muhammad because her husband had slapped her in the face extremely hard. Muhammad was going to rebuke the man, but then 434 came down. Muhammad said, I wanted one thing, but Allah wanted another. In, order, in, in other words, I wanted to punish the man who hit this woman, but Allah said no. Sahih al-Bukhari 58.25, a woman came to Aisha. Her husband had beaten her so bad that her skin turned green. Aisha said to Muhammad, I have not seen any women suffering as much as the believing women. Look, her skin is greener than her clothes. Muhammad did a little investigating and decided that the woman got what she deserved because she had been complaining about her husband. 
But notice what Aisha said. I have not seen any woman suffering as much as the believing women. According to Aisha herself, the mother of believers, the Muslim women were being beaten more severely than the pagans. Why? Because in Islam, Allah justifies beating women. Beating your wives is the solution to disobedience. Now, how is all of this violence affecting the world? If you take a look at the Muslim world, you'll find that wherever Muslims have power, they will fight unbelievers. Wherever Muslims are strong, you will find it's not safe to practice another religion and that it's not safe to leave Islam. Whenever Muslims are strong, you'll find that it's not safe to criticize Muhammad. Indeed, we can even see this in the West when Muslims around the world start killing over cartoons or because someone Rushdie writes a book. This is a direct result of Muhammad's teachings. And across the Muslim world, you'll see problems with men abusing or killing their wives. Can we say that Islam has had such a positive impact on the world, it must be from God? Of course not. So this argument fails, just as the argument for moral excellence did. If we consider these arguments closely, we can even see the circularity involved. Muslims claim that Muhammad was the greatest man in history. Well, how can they say this? It's because in Islam, Muhammad is the standard by which other men are judged. So Muhammad's life is the standard, and behold, Muhammad lived up to the standard of his own life. But it's just circular to presuppose that Muhammad is the greatest moral example and then to argue on this basis that he was the greatest moral example. Similarly, Muslims presuppose that fighting unbelievers and killing apostates and killing critics and beating women into submission are all good things. And so they look around and see that Islam brings these things to the world and they conclude that it's good that Islam has created, has had such a positive impact on the world. But again, this is circular. They're presupposing that Islam is true in order to prove that Islam is true. Because of this, these arguments fail, both arguments. Indeed, if Muslims want to base our acceptance of Islam on the morality of Muhammad or on the impact of his teachings, I'd say that the only reasonable thing to do, if this is the criterion, is to reject Islam. Muhammad has not, has not had a great impact on the world, and he most certainly is not the greatest moral example in history.